Good morning, church. Today I'll be reading Matthew 1, verse 2-6. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. His mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. His mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed. His mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. His mother had been Uriah's wife. Uh, amen. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. You almost sounded like Morgan Freeman just then. That was fantastic. Uh, well, it's a joy to be with you all. Thank you so much for having me and for humbling yourselves to have people from Manchester among your number. That is uh, that that makes me feel good. Um, and uh, it is the second Sunday of Advent, uh, one of my favourite times of year. And so. Um, Malcolm asked me to say something which I hope is appropriate. Three sons left home, went out on their own and prospered. Getting together for Christmas, they discussed the gift they were able to give their elderly mother. The first said, I built a big house for our mother. The second said, I sent her a Mercedes. The third smiled and said, I've got you both beat. You remember how much mum enjoyed reading the Bible? And you know she can't see very well, so I sent her a remarkable parrot that recites the entire Bible. It took the elders in the church 12 years to teach him. He's one of a kind. Mum just has to name the chapter and the verse, and the parrot recites it. Soon thereafter, Mum sent out her letters of thanks. Dear Milton, she wrote one son, the house you built is too large. I live in only one room, but I have to keep the whole house clean. Dear Gerald, she wrote to another, I'm too old to travel. I stay in the house most of the time and I rarely use the Mercedes. Dearest Donald, she wrote to her third son, you have the good sense to know what your mother really likes. The chicken was delicious. <laughs> it's always good to get that out of the way early, then we can just, you know, okay. Pretty much every Christmas, I spend some time reading the uh, nativity texts in the New Testament. Ever since I was telling Penny this morning, I read uh, a book by the uh, eminent Catholic scholar Raymond Brown, The Birth of the Messiah, a big chunky book on Jesus' birth. Uh, and I've always been uh, intrigued about what the early church believed about the birth of Jesus. It was something, in one sense, natural, in another sense, completely supernatural. Uh, the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, technically doesn't have a, uh, an infancy narrative as such, but John says something remarkable happened, that the divine word was enfleshed and made his dwelling uh, among us. But there's one aspect of the uh, Christmas story in Matthew which always intrigues me, and we've heard it read by Sam this morning already, and it's the inclusion of four women in the uh, genealogy of Matthew. Uh, and I've put them in uh, bold. You can probably just about see the bold type. It wasn't completely unheard of for women to be in lists of great 
Israelite ancestors, um, but it wasn't that common. The first woman named is Tamar. Now, Tamar, according to uh, Genesis 38, uh, had a disastrous relationship with her deceased husband's brother. You may know that if a woman died, uh, died childless, uh, her uh, late husband's brother was supposed to give her children. It was a, called the, the leveret duty. Um, but her husband's brother, Onan, didn't do his job. She was incredibly frustrated. She ended up disguising herself as a prostitute, seducing her drunken father-in-law, Judah, and becoming pregnant. Rahav, the second woman named, was an actual prostitute who double-crossed her own people and hid Israelite spies when the Israelites were about to invade Jericho. Ruth used her feminine charms to uh, seduce Boaz, after hatching a plot to allure him with uh, her mother-in-law, Naomi, and then Uriah's wife, like Matthew couldn't even bring himself to mention her name. Now, we know from 2 Samuel 7, her name was Bathsheba, um, but she was such uh, a, a, a challenge for Matthew, he couldn't even mention her name. She, of course, had an illicit affair with David. I use the word affair. Some scholars would say it was more like a sexual assault, can't really say no to the king, etc. Um, but... It was very scandalous, and of course she became pregnant by David, who then hatched a plot to have her husband killed on the front line. Now there are some standard theories about why these four women are included in the genealogy. Why would Matthew include them in the first place? Well, people have noted, first of all, uh, that of course uh, these women were in some sense all sinners, and that their inclusion was to somehow foreground what Matthew's gospel was all about, that Jesus had come to save sinners. Um, secondly, these women uh, are all Gentiles. None of them are actually Jewish. And that may say something about the universal reach of the gospel. So uh, it could be that Matthew wanted his readers to know that ultimately the gospel message would be for all people, not just for the elect of Israel. The third thing is that they're not just sinners in some generic sense, but these were all women who were involved in some way in becoming pregnant in scandalous fashion. And that that was to preempt the fifth woman in the genealogy, who of course was Mary, who herself became pregnant in scandalous fashion. In fact, so scandalous that there were rumors swirling around right through to the Middle Ages that in fact, Mary had been involved with a Roman soldier called Pantera, and that that was Jesus's real father. Now, I have my own theory about this. Um, although Pantera was a common name for Roman soldiers, I think because the early church was saying that Jesus was born of a virgin, and the Greek word for virgin is Parthenos, he wasn't born of a Parthenos, he was born by Pantera. I think that's what was going on. Anyway, the point is that Mary's Pregnancy was considered scandalous. I've noted John 8, 41. Even in the New Testament, there are, there's evidence that there were people who thought that Jesus uh, was of illegitimate birth. I've considered recently that there's probably another reason why Matthew includes these four women uh, in his genealogy. And I think it's simply this. I think Matthew is attempting to restore the dignity of women in a social context where they were marginalized. 
and that the inclusion of these women in this genealogy was to point forward to a number of other women included in Matthew's gospel, women who themselves were in very compromising situations, usually because of unrighteous men, whose dignity Jesus goes on to restore. I think Matthew is attempting to cut against the grain of the status quo and against the social standing of women uh, in the empire. And the reason he's doing that, I think, is to depict just how revolutionary the message of the kingdom of God truly was. Indeed, when Matthew cites that prophecy, um, we can sing it in uh, some of our hymns, that Jesus is our Emmanuel. This took place to fulfill what the prophet would say, Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Um, that's Matthew 1, 23. Then right at the end of the gospel, when Jesus gives his charge to his 11 remaining disciples, he says that I will be with you to the very end of the age. Jesus is God with us in his birth, and he's with us always as he sends out his people to call people into the kingdom of God. Uh, scholars often call this an inclusio, when uh, a similar word bookends two ideas. Uh, and so God is with us at the beginning, he is with us at the end, and what is Matthew's story all about? It's about how God is with us. And one of the ways in which God is with us in Matthew's gospel is to restore the dignity of women. Women who, uh, in the age that Matthew wrote, were marginalized and made to jump through all sorts of social hoops that men were never expected uh, to jump through. And this is uh, as true in the Greek-speaking world as it was in the Roman world as it was in the Jewish world. Indeed, pretty much for all of human history, women have been made to jump through all kinds of social hoops. They've had to prove themselves in ways that men simply haven't. And of course, that is still true very much today. It's even true in some Christian circles that women have to, in some sense, prove their worth, prove their abilities in ways that men don't. I'll show you a couple of examples, both from uh, religious and secular documents. Marcus Aurelius, uh, a very famous Stoic philosopher, was describing a terrible personal experience and claimed that his soul had been taken over. Whose soul inhabits me at this moment, Marcus asks. A child, a youth, a woman, a tyrant, a dumb ox, or a wild beast? So if you're going through a hard time, you're possessed by one of these spirits. Famous Jewish historian, probably the person from whom we know most about the Judaism of Jesus' day, the uh, Jewish historian Josephus writes in one of his works, the woman, says the law, is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly be submissive, not for her humiliation, but that she may be directed for the authority has been given by God to the man. Uh, the Mishnah, 
the first book of the rabbis, which was uh, composed in Hebrew um, in the land of Israel, contains some reflections on Deuteronomy 24.1, which is the divorce law in scripture. And the rabbis argued in their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1, the rules upon which a man could divorce a woman. According to the Mishnah, a man can divorce his wife for promiscuity, if she burns his food, or if he found another woman more attractive. The Roman historian Livy tells this, it's a famous story, it kind of became something of a joke, but it was a story that was told of, uh, of a Roman drinking party. Romans engaged in what we call the symposia, drinking parties, very common. And in this story, um, once all the men were really drunk, they started uh, bragging about whose wife was the most chaste and the most pure. And then at the end, they all went home to greet their wives and all but one was preparing to go and meet her lover. And this was typical about the way Romans viewed women, incapable of maintaining virtue, unless there were men there to assist them. So you get some sense then of how in the ancient world women were viewed. And here's Matthew writing, and he includes these four women in this story talking about the birth of Jesus. These four women involved in scandalous uh, sexual liaisons. And these are the people from whom Jesus descended. Now, Matthew could have included any number of fine, upstanding Jewish matriarchs, Rebecca or Sarah. Instead, he chooses prostitutes and women who seduce their drunken fathers-in-law, these sorts of people. And you think, why on earth? Well, I would argue that these were women in desperate situations who used their cunning and their ingenuity to get out of difficult situations. And through what they did, key figures in Israel's history were born, culminating, of course, in Jesus himself. But the women that Matthew then goes on to talk about in his gospel found themselves in the same situation. And I think that the genealogy, the women in the genealogy are to preempt these women. In Matthew 9, there's this woman who has been hemorrhaging for 12 years. And of course, blood in uh, ancient Jewish thought made someone unclean. So if you were perpetually bleeding, then you were perpetually unclean. And this woman goes and touches Jesus. And according to the law, that should make Jesus unclean. But in fact, it didn't. What it did was heal the woman. She became, un she became clean. So Jesus restores her dignity. In Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman begs Jesus to come and heal her demon-possessed uh, daughter. Uh, Jesus um, has already told us in Matthew 10 that his message was for the lost sheep of Israel. It wasn't for foreigners. And yet uh, this woman makes this comment that, you know, even uh, dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the master's table. And Jesus was so impressed with her answer and so moved by her faith that he healed her daughter, restored her dignity. In Matthew 26, 
at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany. Uh, this woman anoints Jesus with expensive perfume. The disciples go absolutely mad and challenge this woman for this frivolous waste. And yet Jesus defends her act, declaring that she was actually uh, preparing him for his burial because his death would be so significant and says that her act will be remembered wherever the gospel is preached. In Matthew 27, it was this uh, group of women, Mary Magdalene and another Mary, who stood and watched Jesus being nailed to the cross. This person who they had uh, walked with, whose needs, uh, you know, the needs of his entourage they had taken care of, and now they were watching him being nailed to a cross. And a few days later, it was these same women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who found Jesus risen and who went and told the disciples that Jesus has been raised from the dead. I know that you were doing a study about important women and women's role, etc. Um, just as an aside, uh, the reason I personally don't have a problem with women preaching, don't shoot me, <laughs> is not because of arguments about Paul, right? It's because of precisely what we read here. The first evangelists, the first people to preach the gospel, to preach the risen Christ, were women. That's why I don't have a problem with women preaching, because the first preachers were women. The first people to say that Jesus is risen, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, that's why. Because the first evangelists were women. Don't tell anyone that I said that. And if this is being recorded, cut this bit out. Yeah, Are oh, they too late? Okay, my fate is sealed. Come on, so, throughout Matthew's gospel, then, we see these women in desperate situations, challenging situations, marginalizing situations, all of whom have their dignity restored by Jesus. I argue then that another component of why Matthew included Tamar and Rahav and Ruth and Bathsheba is in recognition of the dignity of marginalized women whose tainted personal histories were originally a source of scorn and shame. And of course, this points further to Jesus's own mission, which would uh, culminate in the restoration of humanity's dignity after it had been so horribly marred by sin. And when we think about the humble circumstances by which Jesus came into the world and the violent and undignified way in which he exited the world, I think it even underscores what Jesus did in restoring these women's dignity. Just as God's purposes were realized through the very tainted history of these four women that Matthew mentions, they were further realized through the shame and degradation that Jesus himself experienced when he was nailed to the cross. And what more powerful challenge could there be to celebrate what it means to be human and to have respect for all of humanity, irrespective of gender, ethnicity, social class, educational levels, etc., than for God to enter our world so humbly from a genealogical line that contained these four women whose lives represented the highs and the lows of what it means to be human. Some closing thoughts then for, to help us reflect. Firstly, 
Jesus was notorious for hanging around with all the wrong sorts of people and for celebrating those people whose society typically pushed to the margins, even if, in fact, especially when it drew derision from critical onlookers. Siding with the majority and siding with the truth are not always the same thing. Sometimes standing with outsiders takes courage, which is something Jesus did all the time. And do we have that courage today? Secondly, Tamar, Ruth, Rahav, Bathsheba were all in deeply compromising places in life, and yet they were central to God's plans. Jesus came through their line. Jesus' ancestry was not purely Jewish, and it was not full of righteous, perfect people. It was full of sinners and riffraff of all sorts and of all ethnicities. Now, we often think of solving our problems so that we can serve God. And yet God's plans tend to happen in the midst of challenges. Indeed, sometimes because of them, not even in spite of them. How might we think today about our own challenges, struggles and difficulties as tools for God rather than obstacles? Thirdly, Jesus commended the faith of the hemorrhaging woman and the Canaanite woman. Both of them were willing to violate social taboos so they could get to Jesus. Jesus commends daring faith. I think we're at a time in our history as a movement when developing our discipleship is going to require us to ask increasingly challenging questions. And we can't afford to be hemmed in by church traditions, by social taboos, or by fear. Can we then maturely engage in challenging conversation that requires daring faith? That's what Jesus commends. I want you to uh, mull over those things as we consider the Advent season. Thank you all for your attention. Well, I have some slides too. I bring you warm greetings from Bear. That's our town. It's next to the better known Markham, right next door. We did, used to live there, see the Thunderbolt just outside Edinburgh. We were there three years. Then the Thunderbolt moved south, still in northern England, almost in Cumbria. That's the Irish Sea coming into uh, our home. We look across at the beautiful Lake District, and uh, it's wonderful. Known for its mud flats, tidal pools, quicksand, and more. We live in a church. Now, people have often ask me about my church connection these days. Well, I think I'd say, you know, Church of Christ, ICOC. But actually, this was a, a decommissioned, uh, converted church. Or maybe it wasn't converted in the first place. I can't really speak in judgment. But built in 1955, there was some hanky-panky with the treasurer. So they lost it, and uh, some developers bought it and turned it into flats this year. We live in the daycare center. Uh, <laughs> walk in the front entrance. I mean, some of you will visit me there. It's amazing. It's not that spiritual, though, because the name of the street we live on is Broadway. Uh, you know, Broadway seems to refer to uh, Matthew 7, 13, 14. You know, it's not the way you want to be on, on the narrow way. <laughs> that's where we are. And um, so I suggest, actually, my wife suggests just, there are like 30 or 40 highlights from this year, just to share a few. Um, we started this year leaving Nepal, where I was twice last year. We had Christmas in Nepal. Our daughter, who's in her 12th year as a school teacher, that's Lily there pretending to be Nepali, and everyone thought she was because of the way she looks. But she um, decided to spend her whole summer there teaching in the Hope School. So that was fun. We have a great connection there through our ministry. 
uh, we provide uniforms and computers and other things for the 100 plus children in that school. In fact, maybe some of you have donated to that. But, yeah, we pushed last week, we already have more than we need. Uh, part of my international Bible teaching ministry is uh, helping um, men and women to get education, whether it's tuition or coming to educational places like Israel. So in February, we invited our 16 African teachers and spouses to come to Israel, and we had a blast. Now, we had to cancel next this upcoming one in a few weeks for obvious reasons, but uh, a wonderful opportunity to do things like that. This just happened a few days ago. I was talking with a brother in uh, Uganda, and uh, I think it was through Fair Havens, our new minister, he just wanted to chat. And we chatted on, on Sunday, it's just been a week. And at one point I said, can we do anything to help you? He said, no, I mean, financially we're, we're great. I said, well, what about Bibles? He said, yeah, we do need Bibles. He was given a Bible before he's a Christian. The fellow who studied with him gave him a Bible. That's the only Bible he has. His Bibles are pretty expensive. I mean, you're paying uh, three or four pounds a Bible. That's, uh, that's pretty steep in a country like Uganda. In Africa, with the 54, 55 countries, some are poor, some are richer, but that's a lot of money. So that was something we were able to do yesterday. You can see him carry. I should have hired a porter for him. But anyway, <laughs> and then he went and delivered those around, and, and, that, and that brought great Christmas cheer. He's amazing because he doesn't live in Kampala, the capital. He's outside. It's just too expensive to get in. But he's been there five years in uh, that city, Kajansi. And in those years, he's baptized 40 people. In fact, he sent me baptismal pictures of 32 of them this morning. <laughs> no one told him to do it. It's not an official church plant. Or is it? In whose eyes? <laughs> what are you talking about? And one more thing that my wife and I, we're doing a lot of things together. Uh, our regular, you know, we start every year with that audio devotional lesson series. January, the 31 mornings of January are called On Location with Jesus. We'll start at Nazareth, I think, with the conception. And then we'll go to Bethlehem and we'll follow Jesus, 31 locations, you know, things like Bethany and Jericho and, and the skies. And even later on, Corinth and Damascus will follow Jesus. And maybe you'll be interested in that. We're very excited. Um, among my various jobs is professor of theology, world religions, and so forth. I got a very encouraging letter last week. And you know her. Um, this is Reliable. Uh, and she was the only student in this group. It's a master's degree course. She was my only student who got an A, and she definitely earned it. I'm very encouraged, she said. I finished with an A. Initially, I was terrified about taking your course. It, the thing is, my world religions course, it's not just academic. You have to go and spend time with a Muslim, with an imam, or a Hindu priest, or a Buddhist monk, or a rabbi face-to-face. -face. Most people have never done that, and so it's a little scary. Well, Nigeria has a very large Muslim population, as some of you know, especially in the North. But the, the result of this was that she says, I hope to successfully put together a guide for studying the Bible with Muslims. I pray this will be useful in our churches in northern Nigeria, the Gambia, which is in, even further to the west, that thing surrounded by Senegal, and other highly Islamized regions of West Africa. And we also had an evangelistic study project. So this is, I go to Muslim majority countries, even minority countries fairly often. Uh, uh, soon I'll be in Saudi Arabia, I'll be in the Emirates. And a lot of times the brothers and sisters hold back 
because it's illegal to share your faith. And in many countries, it's illegal to convert. And on the books anyway, you know, there's often a death penalty if you leave Islam. That's the standard position of Islam. So I can understand the, the hesitation, but I'm encouraging people to think long and hard about our mission. It's not, I'll be with you, Emmanuel, you know, with us God, in all nations, except where it's really dangerous. <laughs> Easy for me to say that living in there, Lancashire. <laughs> That's encouraging. And uh, I was at a conference a couple weeks ago. I just happened to sit down to the once foremost uh, Muslim apologist, someone who debates with Muslims. If you get my newsletter, you saw his amazing presentation. And I met some other very humble people. One of them is, is translating the oldest known Quran from uh, the year 750. Uh, others were former Muslims. So I, I care about this. And I go a lot to Israel. Had talked to my wife two days ago. And she was saying, Vicky sends her love, of course. She knows many of you. Sends her love. And, but she's praying a lot for Palestine. Observing that Israel's considered the Holy Land, not just by Christians, but Jews, Muslims, and maybe other kinds of people as well. And so she prays for Israel, and we should too. And not because you want to pray for the Palestinians, may Hamas prevail, or pray for the Israeli Defense Force. I, I think this is misguided. It's far more complex than just picking a side. I wish my American uh, compatriots would understand that. Uh, there's a lot of surprising things that you may have seen in the news. In Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, Jewish settlers attacking with weapons, attacking Palestinians this last week, just because they can get away with it. A long-term pattern. Times are hard, right? And maybe you feel times are hard for you, but there's always somewhere else in the world. The blood of Jesus, however, is shed for all these peoples. Amen. It doesn't exclude the Northern Nigerians doesn't exclude uh, the radicalized Muslims of Hezbollah or Al-Qaeda. I wanted to share one final thing, which I think will lead us well into um, communion, after which Sarah Watkins will be praying for us, praying for me. This is uh, back to Uganda. And this is just going back two days. I get a text. We talked on the phone a lot with his brother, John, the one who doesn't lead a church, although he did baptize 40 people. Um, <laughs> how many Bibles did he need? He said, well, 50 would be good. I said, we'll give you 70. <laughs> He's going to need them. Uh, when I, we talked on Sunday for our first conversation. I said, how are you? Where are you? He said, I'm in the hospital. You're in the hospital. Are you okay? Yeah, it's my wife. She had a, she had a miscarriage. Um, she's been in the hospital a couple days. And he explained uh, that you have to pay for the blood, the units. Each unit is 36 pounds. Now, a place like Uganda, well, yeah, if you're, you know, upper crust, well-paid, or have a cush government job, maybe that's okay. For average Uganda to pay 36 pounds for a unit, and you have to get several. This can, you know, ruin you financially. And um, at first, I, when he told me I had a miscarriage, he said she had a miscarriage, I, I said, I, I guess, she, so if the BP is quite low, I hope she didn't need transfusions. She said, oh, no, she's living because of the transfusions. Well, the blood's in the hospital lab, but there's plenty of democracy. And it, these are his words, which I've only slightly rewritten. Sluggish lab attendants use frustrating tactics to make us, you know, they're basically jacking up the price. And it, it gets worse. Then on Tuesday this week, uh, she had a terrible headache. And they said she needed more blood transfusions, but they had no blood. 
they're supposed to order it, but they didn't order it. They're just, you know, careless. So the blood bank, uh, to collect the blood, you have to be like a doctor with pro appropriate container. You can't do that. I'm sure in Britain, you can't just go to a hospital and say, hey, I'd like a few units of blood, please. I mean, there's paperwork, right? You can't, you can't do that. But because things were so slow, he says, I decided to go get the blood myself, knowing clearly that I don't meet any of the criteria for collecting blood. At the entrance, I met this rude police officer. I've nicened his writing here. Um, he was quoting even the dialect of the police officer, so I, I just put it in standard English for fun, okay. Who asked me what I want. I politely agreed to him. I told him my story. You go dare and knock, but you know they can't give you blood? Do you have ambulance? Are you medical personnel? Do you have cooler box? Now his hope starts fading. So this is John, whose wife could be dying. She needs the blood. It's the life-giving blood. The life is in the blood, Leviticus. Different point, though. My hope started fading. I looked at myself as a fool. It took so much faith for me to dare knock at this huge lab door with a sign clearly stating, no entry for non-staff. You know those signs, right? He knocks. After several knocks, the door opens, and a very calm and polite young man emerged inquired what I wanted. After explaining my situation, he asked, do you have an introduction letter from the hospital in the blood request form and the blood carrying cooler box? I felt a lump in my throat considering the distance I'd driven and Susan's urgent need for a transfusion. I said a quick, Lord, take charge of this situation prayer so loudly and in anguish. I heard the lone lab guy invite me in. Come in, sir. I'm going to help I'm going to help you take blood to your wife. All the units you need, and I'll add extra just in case. No charge. I just get this request form from the hospital. So they phone the hospital, and Lord, I think he means lo and behold, but same thing. They sent the paperwork. The lab attendant handed the blood to me, and I sped off to the hospital. So she got her three units. The transfusions lasted till the morning. Her health greatly improved. Now she's been discharged. Thanks for the prayers and love. A man desperate for his wife, knowing the importance of the blood. And we must not undervalue the blood of Jesus Christ, which he shed and which we remember in drinking the wine, his body, which we remember in taking 